Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 12 through 22. I'm going to call this section Paul Exhorts or Paul Urges the Corinthians to Avoid the Temptation to Idolatry. In our previous audio, in the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, we see Paul using Old Testament examples to warn the Corinthians against bad things that happen when you do things such as commit sexual immorality, commit idolatry, or even complain. Bad things happen. Happen to the Israelites, and they're going to happen to you too, Corinthians. He takes up that theme in this section when he talks about idolatry. And in this section, he's going to mention idol feast, which he's brought up before in chapter 8 and all the problems that arise therefrom, and he's going to compare idol feast to the Lord's Supper, and we'll get some Lord's Supper teaching in here too. So without further ado, we'll start with 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 13. We start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. So whoever thinks he stands, Paul says, must be careful not to fall. No temptation that has overtaken you except what is common to humanity God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Now, this is talking about temptations. That word temptation is ambiguous, not only in English, but in Chinese, I've discovered. It can either mean a test or it can mean a trial. For example, your algebra teacher tests you. Why? To destroy you? No, to build you up in your math ability. God does that to us. He tests us. The scripture clearly, there's lots of examples where God tests his believers. And then there's temptation in which the devil tempts you, seduces you into sin so that you may be destroyed. So you use the same word for two very different concepts. Now, the two concepts are related because if you're tempted into sin, that will test you. In other words, if if you're an alcoholic and you're sitting in front of a half-filled bottle of gin and you want to drink it real bad, well, you're being tested by God so that you might resist it so that you can not destroy yourself with alcoholism. On the other hand, you're being tempted by the devil to destroy yourself. Now note that afflictions are like tests in the good sense where God sends us afflictions in order to make us stronger. They often can also tempt you to sin. So the idea is not the ideas between testing and temptation. The distinctions between those two English words are not as great and not as stark as you might imagine. But at any rate, whenever you see the word, you have to decide, are we talking about testing from God to make us stronger, or or are we talking about temptation into sin? Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tested either, of course, because God is doing that to us, but it's it's not even a sin to be tempted by the devil, as the NIV Study Bible points out. After all, Jesus was tempted, and Jesus was in all things without sin. Jameson Fawcett and Brown puts it this way, it is not a sin to be led into temptation, but it is a sin to run into temptation. And it's one thing to say, I'm not going to drink anymore, but it's another thing to go into the bar and sit down and talk with the bartender as he serves his drinks. I mean, that's just foolishness. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, says that running into temptation is the same thing as tempting God. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 10:9. let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. That's when they were grumbling. In the wilderness, the Old Testament people, even though it says test Christ, that shows that Christ is in the Old Testament. But they tested him, and that means they were provoking him. So that's that's an, another, I guess that's the third definition of test, is to provoke God. G- God tests us for our good. Satan tempts us for our destruction. And if we test God, 
we're just provoking him by being ignorant and stupid. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus told him to the devil, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, that's the idea, a sense of provoke, where the devil was provoking Jesus. Now, Paul here is exhorting the Corinthians to be careful not to fail, or to fall, and he's referring to not falling into specific sorts of sin in the previous 11 verses of this chapter. Chapter 10, he talked about idolatry and sexual immorality, and he says, hey, you think you got it made? You think you're not going to succumb to your Corinthian culture, which is full of false, arrogant pride with Greek philosophy and Greek rhetoric, full of temple prostitutes, full of idolatry, full of sexual immorality, women available at your behest? And you say, well, I'm not worried about that. I can stand. Well, Paul says you better be careful because sin is deceitful, as you know, and it traps people, and it's real easy to not be on your guard. Now, after he tells them not to fail, in fact, he said that also in Romans 11:20, he says, true enough, they were broken off by unbelief, but you, talking about the Jews were broken off by unbelief, but you Gentiles stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. In other words, don't be arrogant towards God, but be afraid of violating God's holy will. All right, so now Paul has told them to be to stand, not to fall, but he also then immediately points out that, hey, it's not up to your strength not to fall. It's God who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and it's God who will provide a way of escape. That's what you're going to need. Quit standing on your own two feet and saying, I'm strong, I can handle this. No, you've got to let God handle it, because if you don't, you're going to fall. You're going to fall into temptation. And by the way, Corinthians, don't feel like you are being subjected to temptations which are beyond the call of duty for the average human being to have to resist because there's no temptation that is overtaking you except what is common to humanity. Everybody has these sins to idolatry. All human beings are idolatrous and all human beings have a drive to commit sexual immorality. Don't worry. You don't have to worry about that. God can make you different than all the rest of humanity. He'll give you a way of escape so that you can bear that temptation. You'll be like Joseph. Joseph found a way out of Potiphar's wife's house when she was trying to say, come on, Joseph, come lie with me. And Joseph says, I'm out of here. He had a way of escape. Now, Paul tells them that to be careful not to fall. He is not telling them be careful not to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about falling into idolatry, eating at idol temples, which some of them apparently were doing. Some of them were shacking up maybe with prostitutes and maybe with temple prostitutes, or maybe just prostitutes in general, or maybe not with prostitutes, but with women, not their wives, whatever it was, he was not talking about losing their salvation, because as we know, we can't lose our salvation, or at least as some of us know. If you're not an Armenian, you know that. This idea of providing us with a way of escape is also reflected in Revelation 3.10, as John, the Apostle John writes, because you have kept my command to endure, referring to Jesus, Jesus is speaking here, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour of trial, the hour of temptation that is going over the whole world. Now that shows that the reason that Jesus is going to keep them from being, not even succumbing to temptation, but even, well, I guess what he means is he's going to keep, when the hour of, when the time of temptation comes, I'm going to keep you from it. You're not going to succumb to it. Why? Because you have kept my command to endure. So you see, the way of escape is provided by Jesus. So when things get tough, I remember one time, brother I had, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but when he was young, he came to a prayer meeting one night and he said, I'm in bad trouble. I said, why? He said, there's this woman at work and she has just basically asked me to go to bed with her. And this guy was single at the time, dedicated Christian. 
And I thought, well, uh, can't you just tell her no? I was shocked at how tempted this guy was. He knew it was wrong, but you could tell the temptation was eating him up. Well, I mean, I've never been in that situation, so I don't want to judge him unfairly, but it seems to me that, hey, tell her no. And if you can't tell her no, ask Jesus, and he will provide you. He would have provided, my friend, with a way of escape. God has good plans for us. He doesn't want us to be destroyed by sin and temptation. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, that's for Israel. This is the Lord's declarations, plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And if God can say that to the old Israel, of course, that's true for the new Israel, the church also, of which we are a part. We have a future and a hope. We're not going to be destroyed by temptation. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into it. But once we make the decision that we're not going to be falling into it, that we take heed lest, lest we fall so that we can stand, once we do that, God will deliver us from temptations. 1 Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If you feel like you're under trial because you're in a government such as in the People's Republic of China where they track your every move, they know when you go to church, they can look at your cell phone and find out your cell phone data and find out where you've been for the last 30 days when they got facial recognition software that can tell where you've been, where you are, and can tell your body temperature within three-tenths of a degree centigrade. You're living under, under that? Well, hey, Peter tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day that they're going to be judged. And he can rescue the godly from trials. I have talked to so many Chinese Christians who've had their churches busted up who've been arrested, who've been thrown in jail unjustly, denied their diabetic medicine, had their lawyer disbarred. I just could go on and on about the slime bags, the sleaze bags, the slime balls that are running the people's government of, of China. I'm getting a little bit carried away because I've been so used to being guarding what I say over the telephone and on the Internet. I'm in America now, and I just feel like saying exactly what I feel about that government over there. They're persecuting your brothers and sisters. Peter says God knows how to rescue those Chinese Christians from their trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous government under punishment until the day of judgment. And may it come soon. 1 Corinthians 10:14. Paul continues, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He's already warned them in the previous section to stay away from idolatry. Now he goes even further. He says, run from it. Flee. The Corinthians were surrounded by idolatry. According to the United V Study Bible, Corinth had temples to Apollo, Asclepius, the god of healing, Demeter, the god of the harvest, Aphrodite, the god of love or lust, and other gods also. Aphrodite was the especially strong temptation. She had a temple there that had many sacred prostitutes. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't go to the temples where the prostitutes are. Flee from it. Or to the temple of Apollo. Just don't have anything to do with it. He's getting ready to tell them to quit eating in these idol feasts. Now notice he calls the Corinthians, my dear friends. He's already called them previously in this chapter as brothers, and he's called them saints, as before he then unloads on them from every kind of sin in the world and warns them against sins, which I'm sure they were, some of them were committing. Let's look at what he talked about to the Corinthians in his next letter, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17. And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. The believers are the sanctuary of the living God. And as God said, I will dwell among them and will walk among the, and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. 
That's the fundamentalist's favorite verse. Come out from among them and be separate. I, I wish it was evangelical's favorite verse. I just heard a story. Young Christian woman in her mid-30s going to church with a South African woman in her 50s. And this woman had a checkered sexual. I'm talking about the young 30-year-old woman. She had a checkered past. She'd been divorced. She didn't understand about boundaries, and I'm sure she'd been sexually immoral. And so she was taught by the Christians in her church that sexual immorality before marriage was sinful and should be avoided. And she told her current Russian boyfriend, which she broke up with because he wasn't a believer, who was asking for sex before marriage. She said, I don't believe in that. But she had this South African woman, about 50 years old, dedicated Christian, who was telling her, well, there's nothing wrong with sex before marriage. But you don't think Christians can be affected by the culture? Well, the Corinthians were being affected by the culture. And Paul says, come out and be separate. I feel like if I could have seen that South African, South African woman, I would have said, you know, you need to come out and be separate from your culture because you are ex encouraging people to sin. So Paul is talking about idols here. He's resuming his train of thought from the last audio in the first 11 verses when he was talking about the sins of idolatry in the Old Testament when they sat down to eat, drink, and got up to play, and how many was it? 3,000 people were killed in the Old Testament, the golden calf incident. And so he's continuing with, with that thought that idolatry is bad. We go now to verses 15 and 16 in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul continues, I am speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? So here we go. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, this section of 1 Corinthians 10 is not basically about the Lord's Supper, even though it's quoted all the time when we do the Lord's Supper. It's about idolatry is what it's really about. And Paul is going to use the Lord's Supper as an analogy to prove that going to idol feast ain't a good thing for good Christians to do. Now, Paul says, I'm speaking to wise people. Now, the question is, was he being serious here or was he being ironic? Now, in two other places, he's obviously being ironic when he calls the Corinthians wise. 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He's obviously being sarcastic there. You are wise in Christ, you morons. That's what he really means. 2 Corinthians 11.19, for you being so wise, gladly put up with fools like us. Or gladly put up with fools like the false apostles, I'm sure that's what he meant. You being so wise. So he's being sarcastic there. And the question is, is he being sarcastic here? Actually, you can't really tell for sure. I read it straight when I first read it. But the more I think about it, I'm thinking he's probably being a little sarcastic here. I'm speaking this to wise people. Why do I say that it's hard for, for Paul to say with a straight face that the Corinthians are wise? They were eating. They were doctrinally not wise. They were eating baby food for infants. They had bad doctrine considering the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. In the first couple of chapters, there was faction and division he complained about. There was sexual immorality he's warning against, which think, makes me think they were doing it. They didn't discipline a brother who was committing incest with his stepmother. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were ignoring the poor at the Lord's Supper. They were participating in idol feast. They were suing each other in pagan law courts. They were abusing spiritual gifts and not showing love to one another. And they were proud arrogant about their worldly Greek rhetoric and philosophy. That's a wise person. That's a wise church. I don't think so. I think he's being sarcastic here. But maybe not. Maybe he's saying, you know, you have wisdom in you. How about act on it? Then he says, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, that's one of the two cups that it was at the done at the Lord's Supper, the original Lord's Supper, the last Jewish Passover, before Jesus was, the day before Jesus was crucified. 
Let's read that. Matthew 26, 27. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. That's a cup. Mark 14, 23, verses 23 and 24. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and so they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood that establishes the covenant it is shed for many. You've heard that many times. And then we go to Luke 22. We see there were two cups, one before the meal and one after. 17 and verse 20 of Luke 22. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. Luke 22:20. 20. This is after the meal. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. So he's referring to one of the two cups. When Paul says the cup of blessing, I don't think he's referring to one in particular. I don't know. I'm not an expert on Jewish Passover Eucharist or Passover practices or early church Eucharist passages, but it was one of the cups. And when you say cup of blessing, that means you're giving thanks for it. In fact, I think the NIV has the cup of thanksgiving. Yeah, the cup of thanksgiving. That word blessing is a little confusing. When we talk about God blessing us, that means he gives us something we don't deserve, something nice. When we bless God, it means we're praising him and thanking him. So the cup of blessing is what we do to God, that we are praising him, thanking him for that cup. Or you could take it as the cup that when we take communion, God blesses us with it. I don't know, but at any rate, Paul is using that to say, hey, when you take that cup, you're sharing in the blood of Christ. Now, what is that word sharing? It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's koinonia, koinonia. Common translations of that word are join, share, participate, communion, and fellowship. Now, here in my Holman Christian Study Bible, the word sharing is used. It's not drinking this cup, a sharing in the blood of Christ. We could also translate it, is it not a joining in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? By the way, that's where we get the term Holy Communion, because that's what we're doing here, koinonia, communion. It, could it not could it be translated? It could be translated as fellowship in the blood of Christ. So the point is, is there's a, a, a deep unity with the blood of Christ when we share that cup. And Paul's getting ready to make the point. So you're going to do the same thing at a demon idol feast to drink the wine there? Well, guess what? You are going to be in deep, intimate communion with a demon. So you want to do that? Now, a little side point. I can't help but point this out. In those verses I read when Jesus in Matthew 26, 27, he took a cup and he and he said, drink, oh, excuse me, that's not the verse I want. When verse Mark 14, verse 24, he said, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. Now, he was referring to wine there, right? Because he said, this is my blood. And I think about Luther and with Zwingli pointing to the scripture and saying, this is my blood. This is my blood. It means literally you can't take it symbolically. Well, it's just nonsense. I mean, Martin Luther was a cool guy and all that, but that's just nonsense. Because Jesus right here said, this is my blood, and he was obviously not talking about literal blood. His blood hadn't been shed yet. It was still within his body. He was referring to a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood. It was a metaphor. The wine stood for something. So I think we just need to be a little bit sane about all this consubstantiation and transubstantiation nonsense that people float around about, you know, Jesus is actually the blood the wine is actually the blood of Jesus, or it's with the blood of Jesus. No, it's symbolic of the blood of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is not there spiritually with you. I do believe that. I believe in the real presence, the real spiritual presence in the communion, not the real physical presence of Jesus in the communion. But we're not going to solve that rip-roaring controversy right here in a couple of seconds, so we'll go on to the main point here. Paul finishes up the verse when he says, The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ, a koinonia in the body of Christ? Same idea. It's close enemy, 
in intimacy with God, Jesus' body and blood, and the body and blood, of course, a symbol of his whole life, because that's what people are, right? Their bodies and blood, that's basically a nice summary of the human being. So we are that close to Jesus. So we're going to do that with idols. One last point before we leave this verse. Verse 16 says, the cup that we give thanks for. That means all the Christians were sharing in the, in the communion cup, not which, by the way, was given in the context of a full meal. I should point that out. This is just the, the wine part of it. We give thanks for it, not just the priest. See, in the Middle Ages, there was a big controversy at several times, lasting for many, many years, over communion in one kind. They had controversies because the priesthood would just give the bread to the communicants, and then the priest would then drink the wine by himself and not with the rest of the people. That is a perversion. There's so many perversions in the Catholic Church of the way things, and the Protestant Church too. Just to be fair, I have to show you a perversion of what the Catholics have done with the communion. I'll show you what the, what the Protestants have done with communion too compared to the scriptures. We go to verse 10:17. This is where I'm going to do it right here. Because there is one bread, we are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. One bread? How many times you go into a Protestant church and see a bunch of saltine crackers crumbled up into a lot of parts? Oh, that really symbolizes unity, doesn't it? Crumbled up, crackled up. No, in the New Testament church, they had communion with one loaf of bread. When I was in China, we had somebody that would volunteer to bake the bread. We had one loaf. Every dog on time, and I would... Encourage everyone who takes communion to, if you have any kind of say-so in the matter, get the communion to be done with one piece of bread. doesn't matter whether it's leaven or unleavened. The point is it's one bread because there is one bread, Paul says here in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 10. Now, this is one of my favorite verses because there's a rose-colored glasses situation that I had over my eyes for years. So I'll tell you what happened with me. I had some, a friend of mine point out to me. He says, uh, does, that, does the unity of the church cause the symbolism of the bread to be created so that's why we have one bread because the church is unified and i said sure yeah why not and he says is that what that verse says i looked at it again because there is one bread we are who are many are one body now wait a minute which way does the causation run does the one body is that the cause of the one bread or is it the one bread that's the cause of the one body? Well, ladies and gentlemen look at this verse very carefully and you will see that is the one bread actually leads to the one body and causes the one body. The one bread is a source of unity, a causal source of unity for in the body of Christ. Why? Because all of us share that one bread. So there's something, this, this is not just a mere memorial service, folks. There's something spiritual that's going on. And that's why it just pains me to see Christians just cr crack up a bunch of saltines and say, oh, this is the communion bread. No, it's not. It's one bread, and that one bread creates unity. Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, let's say this, quote, one loaf alone seems to have been used in each celebration. Well, here, here, of course. Now, a little grammatical point here, or vocabulary point. We all share in that one bread. That's the same English, English word as that translated koinonia in the previous verse, but here it's a different Greek word. It means the same thing. It means partake. The word is metekomen. The form of the word that's there is metekomen. Metecane, I think, metecane, I think, is the Greek word. It just means to share. But it means the same thing as koinonia. 1 Corinthians 10:18. Look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? Now, what Paul is getting ready to do here, he's getting ready to point out the sharing aspect of two different situations. One, the New Testament Lord's Supper meal. And two, the Old Testament sacrificial eating of peace fellowships. 
uh, uh, peace offerings, fellowship offerings, in the Old Testament, where you have a communal meal with one another, and that communal meal represents sharing. And he's going to go from there and he says, okay, well, if that's what we eat our religious meals for, well, guess what you're doing when you eat in an idol feast, telling me that idols don't exist so I can eat in that idol feast. That's not, no, 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 that's not going to fly. Well, let's look at the people of Israel, how they eat, how those who eat sacrifices participate, koinonia, share in what's on the altar. Leviticus 7:15. The meat of this of his thanksgiving offering, thank offering of fellowship, thanksgiving offering of fellowship, I think is what the way the Holman Christian Study Bible translates what the King James says, peace offering. The meat of his thanksgiving offering, offering, sacrifice of fellowship must be eaten on the day he offers it. He may not leave any of it till the morning. That's not that's the offeror. That's not the priest. Leviticus 8:31. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket for the ordination offering as I commanded. Aaron and his sons are to eat it. So now you have the priest eating it. Deuteronomy 12:17 through 18. Within your gates you may not eat the tenth of your grain, new wine, or all the firstborn of your herd or flock, any of your vow offerings that you pledge, your free will offerings, or your personal contributions. You must eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God chooses. In other words, don't eat the sacrifices in your house, but eat it at the temples, what, he's saying, what Moses is saying here. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, and the Levite. So you're supposed to eat with the priest. Now, if you were familiar with the Old Testament ritual, which many of us are not, but that was a common thing. They ate with the priest, and they shared that food, just like when you eat the bread and drink the wine in the Lord's Supper, in the, in the communion, you are sharing with your priest, Jesus Christ. All right, so if we have a sharing with, the, with Jesus in the New Testament Lord's Supper, and if the people, the believers in the Old Testament have a sharing with the feast with their priest, being symbolic of Jesus, of course, there's a sharing there in those two instances. Well, then guess what happens in the idol meeting, in the idol sacrifices and the, and the festive meals that come after those idol sacrifices? You are sharing. You are sharing with that idol. But a strong Christian with a strong conscience might say, but Paul, there are no such things as idols. How can we be sharing with idols? And so Paul goes on to answer that question in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20. What am I saying then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? So he anticipates the objection. He says, no, I'm not saying that idols are anything, but this is what I am saying. Verse 20, no, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate, share, with demons. Notice how he uses that same word, share, which ties together his previous two sharings, sharing in the New Testament Lord's Supper, sharing in the Old Testament sacrificial peace offering with the priest. And now he's saying, I don't want you to share with demons. It's, I'm not asking you not to share with idols. Idols don't exist. But the demons behind the idols exist. I don't want you to share with them. Let me read what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says about this. The inference might be drawn from the analogies of the Lord's Supper and Jewish sacrifices, the sharing meal aspect of those two things. The inference might be drawn that an idol is really what the heathen thought it to be, a god, and that in eating idol meats, they had fellowship with the god. But these verse, this verse guards against such an inference. In other words, you're not having fellowship with the idol. You're having fellowship with the demons that are behind the idol, which I have gone to such great lengths to kick out, to expel from a bunch of people. I and well, which Jesus has gone to great lengths to expel from people. Paul had done some demon exorcism too, and now here you are going to go eat a meal with those demons. Come on, guys, that doesn't make any sense. 
It's interesting, there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says that sacrificing to idols is sacrificing to demons, backing Paul up. Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known, new gods that had just arrived, which your fathers did not fear. So when they were sacrificing to those idols, the, the Jewish idolaters back then, they were sacrificing to demons. Moses explicitly says that. And participating with demons, he uses that same word, koinonia, the ver verb form here. It's a noun, actually, translated this way. You have become shares in demons is the way you could translate it. It's koinononus, masculine plural accusative, a sharer or sharers. You have become sharers in demons. And so Paul says, don't do it. Now, this is an absolute statement. He says, don't do it. It's like adultery. Don't do it. Now, it's very easy to get this argument confused because... He also has another argument concerning eating idle meat, and that's the argument against making weak Christians stumble. Now, of course, you shouldn't do that. Well, if you eat, if you go to an idle feast, you're not only violating, you're sharing with demons and sinning outright by doing it, you're also making your brother stumble. Because if a Christian sees that, they're going to stumble, okay? But there was three other situations where Paul does not explicitly condemn, and he doesn't condemn it as being absolutely wrong, but it's a doubtful thing that might cause your brother to stumble. What were those three other situations? First, eating at home meat bought in the meat market. And the meat markets back then provided on their chief source of supply. They depended on their chief source of supply, the temples, the idle temples. They would buy meat from the temples. And so that when you bought meat in a meat market, you probably were buying, in fact, almost certainly in one article I read, Almost certainly buying our, uh, meat from that had been sacrificed to an idol. Paul says, okay, you're not participating in, in an idol feast. You're eating at home. We know that idols are not anything. You can eat that. No problem. Unless there's somebody there that's going to stumble. Second place where you could possibly eat meat bought that, that had been sacrificed to idols. At a friend's house who had bought meat in the meat market. That meat probably had been sacrificed to idols, but we know that idols don't exist. So eat that with no problem unless there's a brother there who would stumble and fall because of what you did, and you violate his conscience and you cause him to sin. The third situation where a Christian might eat meat would be in a temple during a time when the temple was not being used for pagan idolatrous sacrifices. For example, maybe the building was rented for a guild meeting, a labor guild meeting, a craftsman's guild meeting, and they were eating in there, eating meat which probably came, you know, was left over from idol sacrifices, either from the meat market or maybe straight from the temple. Or maybe the building was used for a private banquet or family get-together or whatever, and that's not a temple worship service. So you can eat there, unless you cause your brother to stumble. So this is complicated, so you just got to remember, four situations, one of which is absolutely condemned, eating meat sacrificed to an idol in an idol, idol worship ceremony. That's absolutely condemned. And the other three situations eating at home, eating with a friend, or eating at a temple that's not being used at the time for sacrifices. Those three situations, feel free to eat unless you cause your brother to stumble. And that whole complicated thing from chapter 8 to here to chapter 10 is solved. We go to 1 Corinthians 10.22. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? He means by eating meat at an idol festival. Are we stronger than he is? Are we stronger than he? Now, Provoking the Lord to jealousy, that sounds a little petty if you think about it. But think about it. If you're married and your wife starts flirting with another man, well, let's say, make it even worse. Let's say she commits adultery with another man. Don't you have a right to be jealous about that? Don't you have a right to be upset about that? You sure do. You've got legal rights to sue her 
for divorce. So, yeah, it's a serious thing. So there's nothing petty about being jealous of somebody. God expects people to worship him, and he doesn't expect you to worship an idol. And if you do so, you are committing spiritual adultery. That analogy between physical adultery and spiritual adultery is all through the Old Testament, where the Jews were constantly provoking Jesus, provoking Yahweh to jealousy because of their idolatry. Let's read some stuff in the Old Testament about how, read some scriptures about how God is jealous. Exodus 20, verse 5, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's a jealous God. You better not commit idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have provoked my jealousy with their so-called gods. They have enraged me with their worthless idols. So I will provoke their, their jealousy with an inferior people. I will engage them with a foolish nation. Psalm 78, verse 58. They enraged him with their high places and provoked his jealousy with their carved images. So Paul's using a common Old Testament metaphor when he says, you go to an idol feast, you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. Are you going to do that? That's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is, well... If you're going to an idol feast, are you provo are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? The answer to that is, yes, we are, the understood answer. Are we stronger than he? Are you stupid enough to get into a fight with God over who's the stronger God? I can finish this up with a quote from John Gill. Quote, what madness must this be? Who can be so sottish and stupid as to think of succeeding? When God is omnipotent and man a poor, feeble, impotent creature, a worm, and but dust and ashes... Thus the apostle dissuades from idolatry and every species and branch of it, partly from its ill effect in bringing men into fellowship with devils, and partly from the impossibility of practicing it in consistence with a true and real participation of the cup and table of the Lord, and from the absurdity and stupidity of it and its dangerous consequence in exposing men to the vengeance of an almighty incensed being. Boy, that John Gill... He, he's better than those Greek rhetoricians. He can really come up with some scriptural rhetoric. Rhetoric. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, I am finished with our second section of 1 Corinthians 10 from verses 12 through 22. In our next audio, we are going to start with verse 23 and go to the end of the chapter. Paul in verses 23 through 33 is going to take up the question again of the weak versus the strong, how to look after everybody's interest in the body of Christ in the matter of eating idle meat. So this is a continuation of our theme from chapter 8 on. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>